It's always soccer in Philadelphia on a beautiful, sunny, 80-degree Wednesday afternoon. And I have a statistic for you. Your town, your team, your Philadelphia Union are now unbeaten in Champions League play. Not only have they scored eight goals, they have yet to concede a single goal, which means they are plus eight for the tournament. And barring a miracle performance from Atlanta United in the second leg, your town, your team, your union... We'll be going to the semifinals of the tournament. I hope I didn't jinx it. So let me knock on wood right there. Uh, joining us to talk about what I would put on my Mount Rushmore of Philadelphia Union wins is a friend of the program, somebody who has appeared frequently over the years but has not been on the show in a little while. Uh, he's your friend and mine. It's Matt DeGeorge from the Delco Times. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. You're on time. Uh, you always have great knowledge to share. Uh, my first question for you right off the bat is, uh, does this win go on your Mount Rushmore of Philadelphia Union all-time wins? Oh, I would, I would think so. I, I, I think as I uh, tweeted it last night, I have it at four right now. Um, I think with a little bit of retrospect, it's going to look better than the Saprisa win, uh, either of the Saprisa wins. Um, but it was an absolutely just mind-blowing win when you really think about it. I mean, they played so well. They they countered so efficiently. They defended well. Andre Blake was phenomenal. And, I mean, it just three years ago, two years ago even, they go to Atlanta and they're down one nothing at half, and that turns into a 4-1 loss. And now it turns into a 3-1 win. It's just – it was a remarkable performance for what they did and the degree to which they just frustrated the living daylights out of Atlanta for Atlanta looking so superior in the first half and then for that to be turned around to 3 nothing. I mean, it was – I'm not often left speechless, um, as as many people know, but yeah. this was – this was pretty close to it. Yeah, and look, you and I, it bears repeating that you and I had always taken on the label, uh, whether fairly or unfairly, of being the snarkiest of the Philadelphia Union Twitter heroes. So, you know, to hear all the praise that you and I are heaping on this team shows you how far that they've come over the years. Um, if there was one kind of thing, I wrote out a bunch of bullets uh, for crossing broad and kind of organized my thoughts that way. And I, I will say to the listeners, you know, we were thinking of doing something, you know, I was thinking of doing another like immediate game after the game reaction kind of podcast. But when Russ and I did it last time, I didn't have anything profound to say because I was just flabbergasted by the result and kind of fumbling over my words and couldn't think of anything amazing to add. So I feel as I'm going to offer more measured uh, analysis on this one, hopefully, but you know, we always like to turn it over to the guests first. And so I would throw the, uh, throw it over to you, Matt, and just say if there's one, you know, if there's one thing that's kind of on your mind or one key or one topic from the game now, 12 hours after it was played, what's uh, what, what's first and foremost in your mind? I'm, uh, I'm going to take the least sophisticated route possible and just say Casper Shabilko is really good at scoring goals. And I know that there's so much that goes into how the ball gets in the back of the net, but at the end of the day, and I think we saw this in for instance, the U.S. Olympic uh, qualifying failure, you need someone who actually puts the ball in the back of the net. And that's the, the second goal he scores. The first goal is a poacher's goal. It's a, it's a corner kick. It's flicked on. All of the Atlanta defenders are bird watching. I don't know what they were doing. Um, just absolutely no one's paying attention. And he's just sneaks in at the, at the, far post you know that's that's a that's a poacher's goal that's that's fine you need that but I think that um that second goal when Flock plays him he takes one touch and just says I'm gonna I'm gonna absolutely just pound this into the corner that's the kind of definitive actions in the box that you need to see from him I I think Casper is he's got a great goal scoring record in this league and he's got a particularly a great goal scoring record considering what they paid for him, which was nothing, and what they're paying him, which is n- nowhere near as much as what Joseph as Martinez zero. is being yeah. paid. Yeah. And it's just sometimes he's too deferential. Sometimes he's too willing to lay it off or take an extra touch. That one there is just 
There was no nonsense. It was get the ball and boom. And if he does that, he can be a 25 goal scorer in this league with that kind of just aggressiveness and decisiveness. Um, And that, you know, that stands out to me. And then he also makes the right decision on the Fontana goal. I mean, that is absolutely the right decision. It's not about give it over to him. Yeah. It's not about, it's a little bit about him being more selfish, but it's about him being, I think more confident in decisive. And in both of those key instances, he was extremely decisive and it led to goals. Yeah. And there's other guys who would have gone for the hat trick there. Um, so it, it, it's funny because he, he, he I, there's been a lot of players in uh, Philadelphia sports history who are maddeningly frustrated where the, you see the highest of the highs and the lowest of the lows. Casper Shabelko, every single time, I'm ready to write down a note about him or go on Twitter and complain about him or think in my head, like they got to upgrade this position. They got to find something else so they can do better here. Literally five minutes later, he shows up and scores. And like without fail, I swear to God, like I really want to go back. You could go back through my like Twitter timeline and look at every piece of criticism I've delivered by Shabilko during the game. And like, I guarantee you that within 10 minutes of that tweet, there's like a goal or an assist or something like that, which makes me look like a moron. But I know that there are other people who feel that way. And so the question really then becomes, or it's not really a question. I mean, the statement becomes, it, you're fine with him doing nothing for 88 minutes if minute if the 89th minute and the 90th minute are him scoring goals. You know, he's a finisher. Like the cash, cash burn now, all he is is end product. That's literally all he is. But that is something that you absolutely need. And mm-hmm. Sergio is all build up and field stretching and no end product. So when you put them together on the field, now you've taken care of all the things that you're looking for. And that's why I think that has to be the pairing. I don't know if Jim said, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know if Corey Burke started for any particular reason about fitness or health or anything like that. But I think what we've learned is that Corey Burke and Shabilko is redundant. And I think Santos and Shabilko has to be the, the pairing going forward. Yeah, I think it was just kind of Corey's time because I don't think Santos played great on the weekend. Um, I think what's going to be interesting, and this is, I mean, this is a challenge that every team across the world deals with, is that, you know, how do you get three strikers who are in a timeshare arrangement all firing at the same time? You know, Casper's going to score one way if he's getting 80% of the minutes, and maybe Corey Burke is going to score you know, 80% of what Casper is going to score at those minutes. But then like the math doesn't work out. Like if you cut Casper's minutes by half, you're going to cut his production by more than half. If you, you know, we see this with Anthony Fontana on the other side of trying to raise his minutes. Um, So there's not a one-to-one correlation in terms of how guys perform. And it's just a matter of getting that balance. I think a big thing with Casper, and I was thinking about this, this uh, I was thinking about this after last night because they have the kind of quick turnaround of NYC Wednesday or NYC Saturday, then Atlanta, and then another game next weekend. I don't need to see Casper go 90 minutes on Saturday. I would love to see him go seven. And they did this last weekend against Inter, even when they were chasing a goal. Um, take him out after 75 minutes, put Burke in. And Jim said straight up at the press conference on uh, Monday before the game that the league's not the priority right now. Yeah. So if he's going to come out and say that straight up, then you you can justify, you know, squad rotation on the weekend in week three of the regular season. Right. So if if he's given himself that explanation, I I buy that, you know, the fans buy it. I'm sure everybody buys it. It's perfectly hundred percent justified. So I don't see why we wouldn't be able to see, something different maybe Stuart Finley gets a start you know especially with five I I was thinking I I don't think he's going to mess with the central defense pairing because he just Jim just never does that that's just I know Um, I know he never does that and I get that I I want to see Matt Real this week in for Kai Wagner because he looked a little uh, he got worked by Jurgen Dom pretty well yeah um so as as most of us would yeah yeah, I I want to see Real this week Uh, obviously you're going to go with Jose Martinez for the full game um, because he's not available midweek. Um, but I'm, a, I'm all for a little bit of squad rotation. And, you know, I think as disappointing as the Inter-Miami loss was, the MLS season has two and a half years left in it. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. the Union, lest we forget, the Union last year lost a game and drew in their first two games. 
So, and then went on to win the supporter shield. Now I'm not saying that's going to happen again, but there's so much we're going to completely, I mean, Warren Craval started the opener last year. Did we remember that by, <laughs> did we remember that by season's end? No. I mean, no. you know, there's going to be so many, and I see that, and I'm sure we'll get to this, but I see that with the antsiness on Twitter of like, why isn't Anthony Fontana starting over, mm. you know, whomever. And it's like, well, there's a lot of games. There is a lot of games. Anthony Fontana is going to start this summer if Jamiro Montero is gone because Cape Verde is tuning up for the Africa Cup of Nations. He's going to start then. He's, yeah. There's so many games. And now the union have an opportunity if they take care of business in the second leg. They're going to play at least 40 games this season, plus possibly more in the Champions League, plus whatever the Open Cup's going to be. There's going to be ample opportunities, and you're going to need these guys. Well, let's touch on the Fontana thing later because that's a good macro level topic. Um, I real quick on Jurgen Dom. You know, I saved myself another embarrassment because I was very, very close to going on Twitter and saying Wagner. All he has to do is just funnel him on his left foot because all he wants to do is go to the right foot on the touchline. He wants to go to his right foot and cut it back on the touchline. And like as soon as I typed that out, was the play where he gave him space and Dom instead just stayed there and played a square ball that I think it was. Sosa hit off the crossbar or something. That was so I was like, I'm glad I didn't put that out there because I would look like a moron. I would have been uh, old freezing cold taked takes, uh, you know, right away. But um, let me let me just go through. Um, I'm just going to go through the bullet points that I had. And you can interrupt me at any point if you want to uh, comment or offer anything on any of these. Um, you know, on the first goal before the corner kick is even earned off the Shiboko shot. That that ball was played in and the shot was created because Leon Flock pressed and turned a guy over and got up there. And and on the second go- on the other goal that he was involved in, he read that there he saw there was a miscommunication between the Atlanta guys got in there, weaseled his way in, one, two, and then he's free. So I was really impressed with him in just for a kid as young as he is, high IQ, knowing when to go, knowing when not to go, uh, and affecting play and in, in from a deeper line position, right? Mm-hmm. Um you know, I thought Jacob Glessness um, should get credit on the corner kick goal too because he lost his mark and he literally dove, came off his feet and tried to uh, do a diving header at the near post. I think that threw Atlanta off a little bit because they kind of like recoil a little bit and there's this huge Norwegian dude flying through the air. Now all of a sudden the ball's squirting, squirting through, you know, but that kind of goes like a bigger, a bigger point on that that's worth studying. If I was on the beat again, I would do this like a big like 2000 word thing, but they really, really, really attacked the near post. On, on set pieces and corner kicks, Alejandro Bedoya is, you know, is really good getting his head on those balls too. So I thought that was interesting. I think, I think of that as the Julie Ertz move where she does that every time, like every corner, <laughs> every corner kick. And it, I mean, I actually thought that Glesnus might've gotten a touch on that ball for the way that the defense reacted. But even if he didn't, you yeah. know, it's a great, and I think that's such a cool little skill that Bedoya has it tremendously. And uh, it, it's, you know, it's an underrated skill, that ability to hit that glancing corner. Also yeah. on that first goal, and I tweeted this, uh, if you watch the way that Sergio Santos uh, occupies the defender on the goal line, I think it's Franco. Um, okay. He basically just like lets Franco wrap him up. And it means that Franco can't react to, he can't recover to the post to get uh, to the shot. And he can't recover to Casper. And he just ends up completely flat-footed so it was a good uh it was a good little interference in front of the net yeah you know it's funny because those um those near post things are are i mean you could very easily draw comparisons to hockey players who are really good at kind of getting in front of the goaltender and just sort of mucking it up and and creating traffic you know there's a lot of uh, similarities it's a lot easier for a, a smaller hockey puck to take deflections off a stick and go anywhere but there, there's something to be said for creating confusion at the near post and that, you know, distracts guys and takes, takes away their focus at the back post. So I think they're smart to attack that from a schematic um, perspective. Um, the Sergio Santos pass on the third goal was ridiculous. I mean, when yeah. you're, when you're walking is bullet point number four, when you're, when the pass is played behind him on the counterattack, he has to turn, watch it go behind him. And then on his weak foot, he's falling over, literally going the opposite direction of the teammate and just turns and clips it with his left foot just based on the difficulty of that skill, I'd say it's one of the top five assists that I've ever seen in Philadelphia union franchise history. It Um, reminds me, it reminds me of the one that uh, Jose Martinez played last year to Santos. I think that was the game winner in Orlando against, uh, against new England, but Mm -hmm. it was very similar to that, that it just said it was a blind pass that sent him out. And yeah, he's got a lot of space to aim for, but you're also, you have to avoid the defender you have to 
hit it with enough pace so that you know Casper can get on it and beat the defender. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also, if you watch that, if you watch that play, whoever the defender is, I don't know if it's Sosa or Franco, just absolutely gives up. Just yeah, absolutely, once he saw he, that go by him, he's like, "Dude, I'm- puts his puts his hands up and like almost stops for two strides, and then goes, "All right, I guess I'm going to chase him. I'm just going to give him that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I beat. saw him do that. Yeah, yeah. You might as well have just laid down and been like, "I'm, I, 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 I give up." They, um, you know, it's interesting because when the press wasn't working early and Martinez picked up the early yellow card, it's like you, you wonder if there's a plan B or can they play a different style? And um, you know, I was thinking originally they go to four two three one. Because uh, that's kind of been the shift they've made over the years. They don't really have the personnel for that this year. I don't think, not that I know of. Fafa that's, Pico is long gone. Brendan Aarons is not here. That's just the Elsino formation. Elsino's there's no Elsino at the moment. Injured, so, so you're not going to do that to get him on, right? Um, but you know, when they, when they show a little bit of ability to bunker and counter, um, they were they were pretty damn good at it. You know, absorbing pressure. Normally, what they do is they mitigate service and they just snuff out chances before they can even happen. But when you got Andre behind you, you don't mind giving up a couple shots. You know, it's like Joel Embiid. It's like you don't mind pushing a three-point shooter off the line if you're going to funnel him into a seven-foot-two MVP candidate anyway. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So you you trust Andre. You play a little bit deeper. Invite them to break you down. They can't. And they got out in transition pretty damn well. You know, it's kind of a stupid point, and this isn't really anything amazingly educational. But, you know, I had a coach back in the day who would always say to me, he said, Kevin, you defend differently based on where you are on the field. You know, mm-hmm. and like the, the concept of the press is that when you push up higher and you're forcing the game to be played in their half or in the midfield, you can take more risks. You can try slide tackles you wouldn't try. You know, you can uh, be a little bit more aggressive or send a second guy if you have to. You know, you can't do that when you're playing bunker ball like Jose Mourinho, but it's another style for them to ultimately win the ball back from a team that can't break them down and get out in transition. Like they, they did look pretty good moving down the field. Um well, especially once Santos got out there. And they also had that moment, too, where Mbizo beat his guy on the right flank. And yeah. they had the miscommunication with Burke. But um, I just thought that was interesting because they haven't really been a sit, sit back and traditional counterattack team over the years. They're kind of an advanced you know, pressing team. Right. And I think, I think I'm going to channel my inner Matt Doyle here. But I think part of it is against a team like Atlanta – you don't want to you don't want to have your line of confrontation quite as high because Atlanta has so many guys that are really good it, it's shifting where the space is yeah. so if you have your line of confrontation too high you're then all of a sudden going to have guys coming into midfield receiving the ball and having space to turn and Atlanta is a team that has a lot of guys that are really good at driving at defense with the ball in their feet mm-hmm. that's not the case in a lot of different teams um, so I think that was part of the adjustment that they made. The other thing that's really interesting to me, and this is going to be what my follow-up story is today, is like when you look at the union and what they've done this year, they struggled against they struggled against Inter-Miami because Inter-Miami was kind of sitting back. And now today they were, they were on the back foot, or last night they were on the back foot mm-hmm. and they were able to counter. And it makes perfect sense that this is the better style for them right now because they haven't had much practice time. Casper Shabilko was out for all of March. So you have pretty much no practice time with him. I, I'm willing to bet that Sergio Santos and Corey Burke are way on, they're easily in single digits in terms of the number of like real practice sessions that they've had, not, not day before game walkthroughs. So you're not going to have a lot of intricacies of playing triangles on the edge of the area and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But what you are going to have is because since Ernst Tanner took over this team, Every one of their drills at practice has a component where you try and turn over the opponent and it's go straight to goal. And that's what those goals last night were. They were, yeah, yeah. They were turn them over, go straight to goal. And granted, two of them were two-on-ones because Atlanta's committing numbers forward because maybe Gabriel Heinze didn't know that there's a second leg. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's, that's their – that's their Jim talks about identity all the time. That's their identity. That's their mm-hmm. default. That's their the best reference I can make for this is in uh, the terrible movie Semi Pro, where they run the pu- where they run the puke play, where it's like when you're so tired, when yeah. you're so tired, this is the play that you're going to have ingrained in your bones. Mm-hmm. And that's I can't believe I'm trying to make a cogent point on a reference of a game where a movie where someone's traded for a washing machine, um, <laughs> but. 
that's that's kind of what it is in their bones of like okay we, th- at halftime they were at they were at crisis stations yeah. they were getting run off the park what do we do all right let's go back to square one and this is what we're going to do we're going to defend we're going to try and turn them over further back on the field than usual but that's fine because that's where the the average position of the ball is anyway mm-hmm. and then you know one two three go to goal and that's just their default in a in a crisis situation. Yeah, and look yeah. at how look at how well they executed it. It was beautiful. I mean, it was it was just absolutely clinical. Doesn't even say it. It was just ruthless last night in that second half. Line of confrontation is what I was looking for. That was the perfect explanation uh, explainer terminology for that. Because right, it's like a, it's like an NBA. I'll make another NBA reference. Like a pickup point. Yeah, it's like you're going to pick up Steph Curry at the three-point line, knowing that he can shoot it seven feet behind the three-point line. You know, and it's kind of like where are you going to, where are you going to engage? You know, yeah. right? So, so um, it's like it's like why guys defend Ben Simmons one step outside of the restricted area. <laughs> that's it. That's the right. Yeah. Ben Simmons and Steph Curry, polar opposites of that on that spectrum. Um, you know, it's interesting because you mentioned like Miami. I, I, you know, if I was game planning against the Union right now, obviously not Atlanta in the second leg because they need goals. But if I was going into a game with them, I would just sit back. Yeah, and I would I say would like- you you break us down because I don't know if you uh, you know I mean if you give I think if you give Jamiro enough time on the ball he'll find that unlocking pass but it's not they haven't proven this season in three games or last season at all that they're gonna a, a team that's just gonna sit behind the ball and do nothing that they can really slice and dice them. Yeah. You know, so that's kind of what I would look at if I was doing that. And that's what they and that's what they faced last year is that a lot of teams did kind of give them the ball and yeah. said, all right, figure it out. Yeah, you uh, do the, it. Yeah. But the next the next frontier then for that is and Jim Curtin talks about trying to get wide overloads all the time. But the next frontier for that then is because you have Bizo now as a better crosser is figuring out that chemistry between the attackers and the outside backs to where, all right, if you're going to sit back, that's fine. We're going to send, you know, they're going to send Flock and Flock Montero and Wagner to interchange on the left and try and create the overload and get the, get the ball in. And then you're going to have to deal with, you're going to have to deal with Burke and Santos and Shiboko through the air. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, then, then that's, you know, that that's the union zigging and then the other team's going to have to zag. Did you uh, so so? What was your take now, looking back on it? Because uh, were you was your mindset? Hey, Jim made an amazing tactical adjustment with the Corey Berg halftime sub, or do you look at it and and kind of do the Negadelphia and say, hey, he made a mistake with the starting lineup. All he was doing was correcting a mistake. No, I think it was. I understand why it was Burke's turn because we had the exact. If we had this, if we were doing this podcast on Sunday, we would have said, okay, it's Corey Burke's time because Santos gave you not a ton in the hour that he was on the field. Yeah. Um, and yet Sergio was really good against in the second leg against Saprisa when he came on. So I, I would I would hope that the understanding is that it's gonna take some time to get these guys to figure it out. I mean, honestly, I don't know that Corey Burke has had 20 practice sessions since he came back, like full practice sessions since he came back because he comes back and they're in the middle of, you know, Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday at the end of last year. And until the international break, and I don't think he went away in that November international break, but he didn't have a lot of practice sessions. And this team is completely different than the one he left in 2019. So it just takes time to figure out how all these guys are going to work. And it takes time for the midfield because, Throughout the entire preseason, they were dealing with Paxton Aronson and Jack DeVries up top. So yeah, I, su- yeah. I suspect Corey Burke and Sergio Santos play it slightly differently uh, than, you know, Quinn Sullivan does. So, yeah. Yeah. Corey's had very little time in the system. Right. I mean, it's a good shout. You know, he's not just going to come back from his exile and learn it, learn it overnight. You know, um, they've been installing this thing over the course of, you know, however long now. Um this, I'm, I'm going to skip over point nine because it's it's obvious. It doesn't say anything. Um, this is, I it, was... is it just is it just Andre Blake? But you replaced the A and Blake with the heart eyes emoji. <laughs> no, it was just about Brujo and how great he is when he's humming and when he's locked in. I just, I just thought the early yellow was like. I, I there's just still some moments where I feel like I'm watching Aurelian Colin where it's like just just like ease up like just you know like three percent, but. Dude, look, I mean, you've got a guy who plays in fifth gear the entire game. If he can play in fifth gear the entire game, I'm not going to tell him not to. As Baxter walks into the room, hey, Bax, <laughs> what's up, buddy? He doesn't make a lot of cameos on the on the show now because he's not – you guys are all – we're doing it all on Zoom. 
So I don't get, we don't get to talk about him or pet him or anything, but he's here. Baxter's, um, ti- Baxter's tired of Zoom like the rest of us are, I I'm think sure. he is. I think he yeah. is, yeah. So I'm, this is what I'm kind of interested in. This was point number 10 I wrote down. If you, if I'm putting the coach hat on you and saying they're up like one nothing, Brujo has already run 17 miles in this game. You're trying to close out the game, but you don't have Warren Carvalho anymore to be that D-mid sub. What, what are you – what are you doing there? Cause I don't really, I don't know how you feel about this, but I'm not really a huge fan of putting another center back on and then moving Elliot up to D mid, but I don't know if flock is the guy either because we, we thought he was a six coming in, but he's played the eight mm. so far. So I don't know. What would you do if you were trying to like close it out? I think Ernst thinks he's a left back to be honest. Um, yeah. But I, I, that's an interesting question. I was thinking about that last night of like, all right, so what are they going to do in the second leg? And I think your two options at this point are maybe like Montero at the six and bring Fontana in. Or you can pro- – they might – I don't think they want to change the shape to play a double pivot because yeah. I don't think either – I don't think either Bedoya or um, – I don't think Bedoya or Flock can play that position by themselves. So that means what they're going to end up doing is Finley and Glessness in the center and Elliot in central midfield, which I don't, I'm not necessarily crazy about Elliot playing there either. And you saw even in the Saprissa game, what they did was they, the second leg against Saprissa, they took Martinez out and put Finley in. And there was like three chances right in a row um, because the chemistry is not there. I, they're kind of in a stuck between a rock and a hard place because they don't have, they don't have a backup. So, uh, well, and we thought Oravets was going to be the guy too. Yes. Know? Cause we thought he was going to have that year to kind of learn. And then he'd be on the depth chart this year. And he's also been exiled to wherever. And I mean, Cole Turner's not making the 18 no. and he, Cole Turner probably shouldn't be making the 18. So for that next leg, I, I, I honestly don't know where they go. Um, that's going to have to be creative whether, and it comes down to a little bit of whether Jim wants to change the shape. And I, I don't think he wants to change the shape because they've played so well out of the diamond. Um, but we'll, we'll have to see how, how that goes. I, I, I think they kind of almost need to add a body there. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think, I don't, I don't know how to say this nicely. I don't see Cole Turner as having MLS starter potential necessarily. Mm. I see it with some of their younger guys, um, but I just don't. Uh, I just don't see it. So, last bullet point. Um, you know, I went back and rewatched some of the game this morning, just kind of in the background, and I just think they had a really, really, really hard time getting used to the turf. Like loose touches, over trapping, over dribbling, some terrible hold up play in the first half. And then they got used to the role, I think, in the second, um, because those counterattacks I saw in the second half would the way that they were trapping and moving and trying to read the <laughs> the role of the ball, like they just did not. That would not have been possible in the, in the first half, I don't think. So um, that's not really a profound thing, but I think it's significant in the way that you you say, like, look, they don't. Yeah, how do they how do they prepare for turf? I mean, they're not still going up to YSC and playing up there, are they? They, no, used they, to, they used to do that way back in the day when you and I were both doing the team, you know? Right. So what they, what they did this time is they traveled Sunday, which I think is partially quarantine rules in the competition. Yeah, they um, got to go a certain amount of time beforehand, right? So, I mean, they did get to practice on a, you know, they did get to go through a walkthrough. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they didn't, I'm trying to look up last year's, I don't think outside of the 14 games they played in New England, they played on turf at all. Um. Now Rensselaer's is went Rensselaer's grass. They didn't go up to Canada. No. I mean they would have been pretty much all on grass. So for a lot of these guys, except for except for New England, and I think Jim and the players would tell you that the Foxborough turf is its own beast. Mm. A lot of these guys probably haven't played on turf all that much. Glesnes probably hasn't. Uh, I don't think Baizo has played a ton on it. Jose wouldn't have played a ton on it. So. No. Um, okay. Uh, the last question, that's all the bullet points I had. Just one more topic I have, unless you want to add something at the end here, but, um, the, the Fontana thing, it's, it's, it's just hard on the surface for me to see how a guy who was your third leading goal scorer last year and had your best G per 90 number on the entire team, mm-hmm. um, is not starting. Now 
the more I watched Leon Flock play and the contributions that he made last night, it's hard for me to justify keeping him out too. So to me, what it becomes is a question of where is Jamiro Montero best deployed? Okay, I like him as a 10. I think he's a pretty good 10. Yeah, I mean, he'll, once per game, he'll make one of those key slicing passes, key pass, set up a goal-scoring opportunity. Um, I love him at the eight. I would rather have him at the eight. Now, the question is whether then, – then it becomes a question of who's the better eight. Is it Leon Flock or Jamiro Montero? See, I just think that they're better deployed with Jamiro at the eight and Fontana at the 10 – and then Flock can come in and do a lot of the things he already does as a sub. But then I look at it on the other side and I say, well, Fontana can come in and score off the bench too. So really, is it just a question of, do you want to be defensively? Do you want to balance yourself defensively or offensively when you start it? And knowing Jim, I think he wants to be a little bit more defensive minded. And that's my theory on why we've uh, seen the formation the way we have. Mm-hmm. So to start out the season, I understand the decision not to have Fontana out there. You want to play the 4-4-2 diamond. That means you need two strikers. Fontana's not a second striker, I don't think. Not, not for any extended period of time should he be a second striker. So you like, want to put, Like a, a, the second striker in the 4-4-2 or like a withdrawn striker? As a with... Well, I, I mean... Because I mean, they put him up there because of the injuries, right? So it wasn't exactly. Was just up, yeah. I don't think that's sustainable, and I don't think, I don't think if everybody's healthy, do you want to play a four-four-two with Casper and Santos or Casper and Fontana? And I think you want to play with Santos first. Um, yeah. I was kind of going through the pairings, and I think the best pairing is probably Casper and Santos. Maybe Casper and Fontana is the second best pairing. I don't know. Um, I think you want to have Casper on the field. I think you want to have Santos on the field. Anyway, if that if he's not going to fill one of those roles, then the only other role Fontana can fill is as the 10. And it's not a matter of him or Montero at the 10. It, it's a matter of him, at Fontana at the 10, or Flock at the 8. And you can't take Flock out right now. He's been playing great. Um, I also think he has a game that is more impactful the longer he's out there. Like it's kind of a slow burn with him. You know, Fontana can come in and have a 30 minute shift and influence the game. Yeah. I don't think that the way that flock plays that necessarily translates as much because he's not a a chance creator or a goal scorer. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think flocks better over the longer sweep of it. I kind of like Montero at the 10 because I think it suits the way that they play and that he has the sensibility he has the tackling ability of a number six, but also the pass connecting and chance creation of a 10. So, you know, the first time they used him as a number 10, I believe, was last year against Montreal. No, not last year, 2019 against Montreal. What is time? I don't know. Yeah, right, right. Uh, I think 2019 against Montreal. And what Curtin said then, and it stuck with me, is that they were using him essentially as an advanced destroyer who could, anytime Sam, uh, anytime Piet was on the ball, Montero was supposed to be in his pocket and they were going to try and turn him over that way. And I think he has the ability to do that. There's not a ton of those kind of passing number sixes in the league. You do it against Darlington Nagby. Um, But you know, now that Jeff Lorenowitz is retired, you can't do it against Atlanta. Um, Now that all that grace is, is retired. Um, But you, you know, I think he suits them in that way because he's going to pester teams and turn them over. Um, I think he works a little bit better when Santos is there because their styles mesh really well. So I, I don't have a good answer for, for that. I think right now I understand why Fontana's on the bench. Um, but at the same time, he's still impacting games. I mean, he's still got two goals and two goals and a penalty drawn in five games. That ain't bad. And I no. don't, and I don't think that, but I don't think it scales. Like if he's uh, Brian Schiretta of, of soccer, uh, of, Oh God, ASN. I don't know mm-hmm. why I was forgetting his, his outlet, but he pointed out that, you know, in 1100 minutes, he's got 12 goals over the last two years. Yeah. That doesn't mean that if you give him 2000 minutes, he's going to have 24 goals. Or if right. you give him right. 2,500 minutes that he's going to have 30 goals, it just doesn't scale like that. And I don't know if it's a little bit of curtain protecting him in some ways or shielding him or just getting the most goals per 90 bang from his buck out of him. Um, 
but it's working. And I also think there's going to be those opportunities. There's going to be chances. There's going to be, you know, uh, Jose Martinez should be away with Venezuela for some of the time this summer because he's played well enough to deserve it. So you're going to need, you're going to need an extra midfielder and uh, that's Fontana. He's ahead of all those other homegrown guys. So I think the answer is, is that if you have 12 starters for 11 spots, that's not the worst place to be in as a club. And that's a lot, that's a lot better than having 10 starters for 11 spots. Yeah. Listen, man. I mean, I just keep thinking, Hey, these are great problems to have, you know, long gone are the days where this team couldn't even put 11 competitive dudes on the field, let alone have these nuanced, you know, multi-position guys. And we're trying to figure out now what their best position is. This isn't, this isn't, this isn't trying to hammer the square peg of, of Keon Daniel into the round number 10. Gabriel Farfan playing left back on that team. Think of, think about the the crazy crap that this team has done. Actually, and actually last night, (laughs) I I was thinking last night and I didn't have time to frame this into a tweet because I was a little fried, but uh, that Cruz Azul team that, fairly blew the doors off of Toronto and it would have been a five, one game. If not for, if not for VAR, um, this, one of the starters on the back line on that team is Rafael Baca, who right around the same time was signed. <laughs> I think it was crew. It was Cruz Azul and club America and maybe one other club that made a sweep of MLS teams MLS and guys. Yeah. Among the guys they signed were Rafael Baca and Gabriel Farfan. Very well, good. Yeah. One of them has had two. Or was it fun. Mike? Was it Mike? No, it was Gabe. Was it Gabe? No, I think it was Gabriel. Oh, okay. All right. Sorry. I, I would have to go back and look at it. Right. Okay. Either, either way. He took a far fan. Exactly. <laughs> either way. Yeah. Take a, take a far fan. Leave there was a like far a third fan. guy in that too. It was Baca. It was one of the far fans and it was. There was like five guys uh, that signed they got a bunch of three yeah. months. It was interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah. Rafael, well, Rafael Baca is 200 appearances for Cruz Azul later. And, uh, uh, uh that whichever far fan it was, both of them combined were slightly less than that. So I know it's crazy. It's crazy to think, you know, that um, seven years ago, this team was starting a striker at center back of his partner was a defensive midfielder. And then they had two right fullbacks um, making up the rest of the defense. Now where were they're flush with depth and all the questions that we're asking are good, intriguing depth questions, you know, and trying to figure out what the best positions are for these guys. And, you know, I would just wrap it up by saying, and I'll answer everybody's questions later after the segment with Matt, but um, I, you know, I, I do the occasional union story now on crossing broad just because they're playing well and you can justify it. You know, nobody gives a shit if they're losing. I'm not going to break down a game if they're losing. And I don't put as much time and effort into it as I would, would for voice or whatever, because it's not like my main job anymore, but I notice like more people engaging with the posts on Facebook and more people reading the stories. We're getting more clicks on union stories. And I think the thing that sold it to them is not only because they're winning, because you can sell any team in Philadelphia if it's, if it's winning, you know, if the fucking tiddlywinks team was 15 and 0, people would write about it, you know, but they play like a stereotypical Philly team. Okay. They grind. There's no egos. There's no sulking. There's no bitching. There's no moaning. They work hard. They play a collective as a collective unit. They defend. Like it's just very relatable, you know? And so that's, I think you have now I see like these Flyers fans and Eagles fans who are commenting on the crossing broad union stories. And they're saying, Hey, it was a great game. Or like, I dig it. Or I love Brujo or something like that. You know? And when you and I were like in our days of like covering the crappy union teams, that was a totally foreign concept. Like, you know, that nobody wanted to give soccer 10 seconds in this city. So I just find it fascinating that the union are now unbeaten all time in the Champions League and you're converting four for four fans at the same time. So I, as I look out my window, I see hell freezing over. I was, hey, as I look out my window, I was walking down, I was walking through South Philly uh, on Saturday on a game day and I saw six or seven union shirts. So it happens. Also, I'm working on a feature on one of the players on the <laughs> Telford til, uh tiddlywinks team oh are okay you? okay uh, yeah good. he's got a got a great story got a great story all, all right. right well we'll look out for that yeah. one you you can find that in the delco times it's uh matt the george a frequent contributor to the podcast a friend of the program and somebody that we always like having on uh somebody who paid his dues and because of his hard work and effort has helped grow the profile of soccer in the delaware valley thanks for coming on my man thanks for having me all right we'll do it again all right 
Let's see what you got for me as far as questions, comments, and concerns. We're going to start it off with Ken, Ken Hawk, who says, are Atlanta fans right in saying that Atlanta lost the game rather than the Union won? Well, I think that's a little disrespectful to uh, Andre Blake and the defensive effort and the great counterattacks that they went on. I think you probably, I'll take the cop-out answer and say that two things can be true. Atlanta have, probably should have finished one of their chances early choked went for it you know was a little bit uh overzealous and didn't really consider that there's a second leg and uh the union also won it so i mean you got to give credit where it's due you know don't be sore losers uh silver ray is curtain a tournament play savant uh or does the union playoff record negate that yeah it's interesting to think that they've been so good uh, in the open cup and now in the champions league with this mindset of like winning win or go home right because the playoffs is still the same thing yeah, you know, so I, you know, I guess we would have to say that it does negate that, right? You know, because it's the same theory, but they haven't been able to do it then, you know. So, uh, Phil Kaidel uh, from Crossing Broad says, "How can Cashper be that lethal in a match of that level and also be so useless so often?" And that's the rub, you know. So what I was saying with Matt, it's like I, I, there, there's the levels of like frustration with him versus like you, you blink and he scored two goals. Just makes it seem to me like how do you take somebody like that off the field? You know, it's like, <laughs> I can't. Every time I like sit there and say to myself, man, I wish his hold up player was just a little bit better. You know, I wish he could um, hold on to the ball here or get another guy involved or something to do, like some of those CJ Sapong things that he used to do to, to kind of bring people up. Uh, you know, I turn around and then there's a goal or something like that. So you know, it's just about if you, if you know that he is what he is and he's all end product, then Santos has to be the compliment for him because. Um, you have to replace the skills that Cashper's not bringing with the second striker and say, look, his lethal scoring ability is invaluable. So we're just going to have to live with his shortcomings, knowing that he's going to be reliable for a goal or two or whatever. Right? Uh, Joe House says, after seeing him for over a year now, where do you stand on El Brujo? Does it mean wizard, sorcerer, or warlock? Um, yeah, listen, I think because this is the thing is like it could mean any of those three things in Espanol, right? So we were saying um, we were trying to figure out what the difference was between all those things. The war, the warlock's kind of like evil, you know, like there's a, a connotation there that they're dealing with like demonic shit or whatever. And the sorcerer kind of is like, um, you know, they they have their like natural powers or something like that. Where the Dungeons and Dragons people were telling me, like the wizard studies from books or whatever, and the sorcerer just kind of has the innate ability. So, knowing what we know about these three words now, you'd have to say sorcerer, right? Because the the God given talent is there. I mean, this dude's got like talent oozing from every orifice. That sounds gross. Why did I say that? He's got so much talent coming coming out of him <laughs> everywhere. That is just uh, how can you not be impressed? You know, you know. If it, it again, it's just about contr- playing under control. You know, if he can play it fourth or fifth gear the entire game, God bless him. You know, but um, you just want him to limit wear and tear. You know, and you don't want him to get yellow cards or red cards. So you know, but if you're willing to live with it then so be it. But to answer the question, we are eliminating wizard. We are eliminating warlock and we're going with the sorcerer. All right. Uh, Donnie B says, let's talk about Blake. Wow. Yeah. I don't really have, it's not anything I can say about Andre that we don't already know other than kind of expounding on the point that I was making to Matt earlier, which is you can, you can live with these guys taking shots, you know, and invite pressure, invite teams forward. If you know that you have a really good guy behind you, you know, it doesn't work the same as in soccer as it does in basketball, but you think about risk taking, you know, I'm okay with pushing, um, Steph Curry off the three point line from filtering him towards a, a rim protector, you know? So Andre Blake is an elite rim protector of the soccer variety. You know, and that's that's fine because a lot of what they do is that in those early games against Saprisa and the crew, they weren't really allowing many shots at all because they would just kind of prevent the crosses or prevent the service from coming in in general. So it was an exercise in mitigation, not absorption, right, if that makes sense. Like one way to prevent a team from scoring on you is just to snuff out all their chances. Another way is to limit their chances and make them low percentage chances. So the union did the latter 
excuse me, last night, whereas in the Columbus game, they just sort of starved Giassi's art as of service, right? So it's it's kind of two different ways to look at it. And again, that's based on whether you're collectively cluster pressing higher up the field or you're sitting back and bunkering a little bit more. Uh, Matthew Batdorf, he says, how much would we hate Sergio Santos if he was on Atlanta versus how much we love him after last night? Yeah, you know, he took a dive. I think it was him who took a dive, <laughs> absolutely like outrageous dive, at the, like in the 80-something minute or whatever. And I just laughed because they were concacaffing uh, the hell out of Atlanta towards the end there. And uh, Jose Martinez, too, was, was getting booed, I guess, right? So it's interesting. They had these like little you know belligerent kind of – under your skin guys, but, but they're not, you can, you can live with it because it's not dirty. Right. And it's not like uncalled for. They're not crossing a line. Um, you know, you think of like instigators and, um, guys who are like a pain in the ass and stuff like that, like Felipe, right. From the red bulls and like DC. And I guess he, he ended up in like Vancouver. He was in Vancouver or something. And like he's a pain in the ass, and like there's a difference between being a bitch and just kind of annoying other people because you play hard and you're a ball winner and you're and you're passionate. And you're going to get up in in somebody's face if they tackle a teammate or whatever. So I think there's a definitely a line to be drawn there, and I think the union guys who bug other fans are standing on the right right side of that line. Um, okay, this is from Man On uh, saying, "How do you feel?" Uh, how do you feel about that game given that the performance was shaky, but the result was historic? Yeah, I, I, you know, it's, it's crazy. It's another one of those things where I think we said a hundred times last year, you know, that they were finding what you, they were finding ways to win games, even when they weren't playing well. And that was the biggest thing to me when you talk about the union of past years, uh, the that's so union era versus the new era is that the that's so union era, they played good games and they had moments of brilliance and they had some good players. But it was always like the not being able to put it together or giving up a late goal or something like that. That's that's the difference to me. You know, finding ways not to, to finding ways to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, right? So I don't knowing what we know about this team, I think it's okay because when they're not on, they found ways that they can still win, and they can win in different ways. You know, by bunkering and countering. So. I think that's it. You probably have to feel good about the performance, even though they looked shaky and they didn't play their best. Um, Phil, uh, Phil in me, PHL in me says, who seems like the most likely to get significant minutes out of the new batch of homegrown players? Is it McGlynn? Yeah, I honestly don't know. I mean, we, we've been, people ask me this question all the time. I wish I had a better answer. Uh, maybe I would if I was, if I was still on the beat, but, um, I liked what I saw from Aronson in limited action. If it was me, I'd, I'd like to see more of him knowing the pedigree and knowing what his, what his brother was. So. Uh, Silver Ray wants the Mount Rushmore of Casper Shabilko. CCL goals. Okay, I'm going to say the first one against, we're going to say Atlanta, goal number one, Atlanta, goal number two, and then we'll go with Saprisa. That's going to be my Mount Rushmore. Only three games to choose from, right? Um, talk to me about rumors, says Randy Union, and he's talking about this Daniel Gazdag, uh, Hungarian dude who's been linked. And this Jan uh, Vodhanel guy. I, again, I, I don't know much about him. Um, the one guy is like uh, 25 years This Gaj Dog guy is 25 years old. He's playing for Hanved, I guess is how you say it. They're a pretty good team um, in Hungary. They're they're based out of the um, out of Budapest, the capital. I think they had been in the Europa League a couple years back. He's scoring some goals over there. And this uh, Vodhanel guy, or however you say it, is... Um, from the Czech Republic. Um, another youngish dude, 24, they were linked to him earlier. Um, he's he's a midfielder. Um, and uh, the um, the gosh dog guy is, is kind of like an attacking midfielder. So I guess he's like the number 10-ish kind of guy they're looking for. I'm not sure, though. I wish I had more for you. Um, maybe I can find more and let you know on Twitter. Um John Krusoff, he says the union really dig these intricate passing patterns, um, but does it seem to you that there's just too many times where there's too much looking for the line splitter rather than working the ball up the field? Um, I think it's a product of how they play and what they're asked to do. You know, Matt pointed out that, you know, 
you win the ball, you go in transition. You know, win the ball, you move forward, right? They're not winning the ball to possess the ball necessarily. You know, their actions are always going towards the goal. So, you know, the biggest difference I can point to in that regard is, you know, you guys all remember when Madunian played here and Bedoya was getting up on the right flank with Elsino and even like a year or two of Keegan Rosenberry where they'd just get up on the right flank and they'd start pinging these triangles and, um, you know, looking like um, PSG for a couple minutes. You know, they, they don't do that anymore because it's more intentional. And it's more about them going forward and attacking. So I think there's I think there's a purpose to that. Yeah, to to answer the question, um, this is from Alex. He says, "Who starts for Brujo next week?" Um, yeah, I don't. I sorry, I've been like really crappy paying attention, like the yellow cards and stuff like that. I guess he's out, right? Did we get a? We know that for sure, All right? Well, assuming that he's out, um, I guess Flock, right? Elliot, I, I don't know. I, I guess Flock. I don't. I just don't like playing center backs at D mid. I mean, I know he played it in college, but um, I think Jack was okay in the couple games he played there, but I just rather have a natural midfielder playing there. You know, uh, Alex uh, says, uh, is Ernst Tanner the best front office executive in Philadelphia right now? Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah, he is. I mean, to me, it's him. It's not Howie Roseman. It's not Chuck Fletcher. Daryl Morey's good. And, um, I mean, Jerry's still out on Dave Dombrowski, you know, because he's still new. So, But, yeah, I mean, you'd have to put Ernst number one <laughs> by far, by far. Um, also, he says also who would Ernst Tanner pick in the NFL draft? Uh, not, a over, not an undersized uh, – he would not reach for an undersized edge rusher. Let's just say that. Will the Eagles do it? Uh, we'll let you know. Call 610-632-0975. All right, uh, Sean wants to know better second from the Union or worse from Atlanta. Yeah, both. Both. I mean, just as good as the Union were in the second half, Atlanta was that bad. So, I'm sorry if that's a cop out answer, but that's I think what it is. Uh, Joe says, "What's the best striker depth chart for this team?" Well, I mean, I think you got to go Santos and Shabilka because they're better complement for each other up top. Corey Burke can be a Cashper replacement. I would not play him with Shabilka at the same time. Um, and then whoever from there, you know, it, it's a, I don't, it doesn't really matter beyond there, you know. And normally what they would do is go four two three one. There would be one guy up top there anyway. But um, you know, if they're going to commit to to playing this moving forward and not really coming out of the shape, then you're probably going to need somebody to step up and be that fourth guy. You know, maybe Fontana. Maybe they try more Fontana up there. Um, Brujo versus uh, this is from Lay Tooper ninety. Brujo versus Connor McGregor. Who you got, and what's the line? Yeah, well, look, Brujo weighs. What, what do we think he weighs? Like one fifty five. I'll take a guess. I'm too lazy to Google it. Uh, McGregor was at his best at one forty five, and then one fifty five. Uh, actually, he's been better. He's got you know some wins at one fifty five, but he's not that great at one fifty five. So, um. As long as uh, if Brujo throws the calf kicks and McGregor doesn't check, then I think Brujo wins. Uh, and still, or and new champion of the world, El Brujo, uh, the Sorcerer Martinez. Uh, Sean Croce, no relation to Pat, I, I think. Uh, can someone make a video and put Welcome to Atlanta over the highlights of this match? And uh, Paxton Aronson, style consultant, responded to him and said, I think this is a job for Hulk. Union smash. Uh, this is for this is from Kanye Wu. This is Burke and Cashper are the same striker, except one is better than the other. That is all. I agree. That's a good comment there. G Zolo says, "What do the Union do when Martinez is out of the lineup and eventually Flock and Bedoya need a rest?" Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It's yeah, Elliot's there. I don't know much about the homegrown guys. I would hope that, that one of them gets a chance. And like Matt and I were saying, I'd do it early. You know, now's prime time to, to do some squad rotation and see some of these young dudes so that you know what you have in them. So I would do it as soon as this game coming up on the weekend. It's a good question, though. I, I think we're kind of in wait-and-see mode there. Uh, this is from Chris. A lot of questions, man. People are amped up about this one. Uh, any idea Flock, uh, the Flock fine was Ernst, or is Albright becoming a world-class talent spotter? I mean, it seems like an Ernst signing, right? Young German-American. Um, I'm sure he'd, he'd been on everybody's um, – you know, list of guys to keep an eye on all these dual nationals. Everybody's tracking them. So, uh, Mitch says, what's your assessment of Leon flock so far? Who would you compare his game to? Uh, he looks like a young Bedoya. 
doesn't he? Good two-way grinder, good work rate, um, knows when to go, when to stop. High IQ, makes a smart play, doesn't really overcommit. He's got a lot of like savvy uh, to his game, which you don't really see in young guys. I think that's probably why they like him. Uh, Jared says, man of the match. There were a few to choose from. Yeah, Casper, Andre Blake. Um, the center backs were good. Brujo. You know, I, I, I go, we'll go. Blake, Shabilko, and uh, Brujo in any order you want to go in. Billy Venture says, Atlanta. Yes, Atlanta United. They beat 3 uh, nothing. Jack Fritz, Adelphia's legendary, says, Can you even imagine playing a Champions League semifinal at the Azteca against Club America? No. <laughs> Not in, like, my wildest dreams. I just, well, here's the thing. Can you imagine if they get, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but if COVID's not, you know, if they're not letting fully people in at COVID, are they going to get Club America in like a 20K Azteca, right? Because I don't think that they're not even close to full capacity down there, are they? I haven't been paying too much attention. That'd be amazing, man. I would, oh, shit, maybe I rejoin the beat and go fly down to Mexico City, you know? I'll fly early and do quarantine if I have to. Um, la, 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 la. Uh, Lou, Lou says, uh, Matt Real today as a CDM, uh, LCM, not bad. Yeah. You know what? And we've talked about this before. I, I like Matt Real in the midfield. I think he's got a good left foot and, um, a good sense of when to get forward and he can hit a cross in. Uh, maybe he's the answer there and not left back, you know? Uh, you know, and if you do want to go four two three one, you need wingers because you don't really have wingers. Maybe you put Bedoya on the right and Matt Real on the left. I, you know, something to think about. Uh, unkempt surfer says, do you think Curtin shuffles the midfield around or plugs a guy in for Martinez? Maybe plays Montero at the six and Fontana at the ten. Yeah, a lot of questions about that. I don't really know. I mean, if you're asking me straight up what I would do, I'd try Flock at the six and Fontana at the. 10 I think because you can then have one of the homegrowns come in and play the other eight you know so I, I would like to see at least one game of flock at the six to see if he can do it you know um, you don't have to necessarily be big to play there but you have to be mobile and strong which Brujo is and I don't know uh, how much of that flock has so we'll we'll, we'll see um, Rick McGovern says what the actual hell I don't know man I do not know I'm just as um, gobsmacked as you guys are uh big max says is the u actually better than we think are they winning on talent or because they're buying in flock what the hell what a freaking find uh he is it's all of those things man i think these guys individually are talented but they're they're buying in they have a defined system and an identity and they just they know what's asked of them and they do what's asked of them but again man no egos guys that are easy to cheer for there's no superstar girlfriends. There's no fancy cars. Um, there's like none of that stuff. They're they're just easy to to get behind. Um, all of them are good dudes. No off field issues that we know of. They play hard and they like to play. I mean, it doesn't honestly. It doesn't get any more Philadelphia than that. It sounds so trite and cliche. But that's my selling point to the four for four fans. You know, I say like if you talk about Philly, all the things you're complaining about that the Eagles aren't doing, that the Phillies aren't giving you, that you don't get from Ben Simmons or that you don't get from the Flyers right now, like that's what the union are right now. You know, that's what they're doing. So if you want to change the channel, go for it. Um and that is it. That's it. Great. That was awesome. Uh, good uh, stuff from Matt and great questions. A lot of questions. It's nice to actually have games to talk about, you know, geez. Um, so listen, I, I, I don't know, no real news to share. We're coming up on the fifth year anniversary of the podcast, believe it or not, uh, which is cool, you know, cause Dave, uh, and I started it back in 2016, right? So 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. Yeah. So here we are. Yeah. I don't know how people feel about COVID necessarily right now, but, um, I got the first shot and I'm getting the second one in May. And I feel like most people are going to be, you know, vaccinated and probably wanting to be out and about and whatnot. So if we can get to like full capacity uh, at the Larimer or down at the stadium, wherever, I was thinking it would be cool to do a five year uh, anniversary party, you know, because we were supposed to do the show with Sean and uh, Joe um, at the, for the home opener last year. And that got canceled due to COVID. That was only like four days after COVID. I don't know if you guys remember that. Cause the Sixers game with Rudy Gobert or whatever the hell, or the Rudy Gobert thing and then the Sixers-Pistons game was on March 12th, 
we were supposed to do the show at the Larimer on the 16th, I think, March 16th. So um, we always wanted to reschedule that and try to do it again. But because it's an anniversary of the podcast, I have a lot of um, I have a lot of like swag and, uh, you know, promotional stuff that I get from the various teams and organizations and stuff like that. I've been collecting it and it's sitting in a pile in my office right now. And um, I would love to do another like giveaway because at the last live show we did like we gave away some items and stuff like that that made it fun for people to be there and be involved. So I have a big pile of swag to give away. Maybe we could link it into another like charity thing, try to raise some money for another group or something like that. But um, I mean, drop me a line or DM me or whatever. And if you think it's cool, if if you would be willing to, you know, if you're vaccinated and if you're feeling okay about, uh, you know, going out and doing things, if we put together, if we aimed for like you know, July or August or something like that. And we did a, uh, you know, five-year anniversary party at the Larimer or at the tailgate um, area and did a live show and like a, you know, a raffle for some of these items or whatever, and maybe try to do a um, charity thing. Let me know if that's something um, that you'd be interested to do. And uh, I can uh, put it together from there. And maybe we'll get Sean and Joe involved again. And we'll do like a combined always soccer union soccer podcast, uh, Fox sports, the gambler thing. Uh, at the same time. And by the way, I never announced it on this show. I just announced it on Twitter, but it's great to be doing the post-game uh, radio show too at the same time. So that's just another cool opportunity. I know Sean, you know, has always been uh, psyched to to have the union on on the gambler. And, um, you know, it's cool to be involved um, and, and just j- hop on and do that hit and do some analysis of the game afterwards. So thanks again to everybody for uh, for listening to that. But, yeah, drop me a line and let me know what you think about uh, doing a five-year thing. And if it's a good idea, we'll do it. And if it's a bad idea, then we won't do it. All right. Thanks, everybody.